Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to The Everything is Black and White, a Newcastle United podcast brought to you by Chronicle Live. We are the only place you need to come for all the up-to-date news about your club. We have a panel of expert writers who have covered the club for many, many years. We have legends of the game who also join us as special guests as well as writers from further afield. Hit that subscribe button and get your weekly update of Newcastle United. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Gibbo's Corner. I'm Andrew Musco, joined by veteran Chronicle journalist John Gibson. It's been a while. We did have Gibbo penciled in for the week of the FA Cup quarterfinal against Manchester City, but um, you know things have taken a turn for the worse in terms of the coronavirus and what have you. We are stuck at home. We only live about a street away from each other, but we'd like to be doing this over a pint, but we can't be. So uh, Skype it is. For the podcast here. John, how are you keeping? I'm good, I'm good under the circumstances. Like, trying desperately to remember what it's like to see Newcastle United play, but uh, hanging in there. Indeed, indeed. Well, it's good to hear from you. What we're going to do today, um, as usual, we're going to dive back into Newcastle United history. But I've given John the task of picking his top five elements of Newcastle United. I've given him, given him a manager, a captain, a game a top moment, a top goal to choose. And he's picked his best, his his top, as we say, of those subjects. And we're going to dive into why he's picked, um, you know, who he's picked for manager, who he's picked for uh, goal, etc. Um, it's it's very hard to explain in, in 30 seconds, but I'm sure as you listen on, you'll get what we're going at. Think match of the day, but slightly better. John, we'll start with the best manager you've sure. worked with at Newcastle United? Uh, I've gone for Joe Harvey, um, simply because whatever happens in football, the bottom line when we boil everything down is about winning something. Uh, that's what we're in the game to do, uh, strangely enough, with Newcastle United. And uh, he is the last manager that's actually won anything at Newcastle, i.e. the first cup of 1969. But it's not just because of that, Andrew. I mean, he's, he's recorded Newcastle is superb. There, there's other people being pushing him. Uh, without a shadow of doubt in my mind uh, for the title of best manager of all the two obvious ones that stick out for me there's been three great managers Joe, Kevin Keegan and Sir Bobby Robson uh, although you've obviously got to put in Stan Seymour but I'm slightly uneasy about that because the situation in those days was very different Stan Seymour was never ever officially Newcastle United manager he won the league with them as a player won the cup with them and then he was chairman i.e. owner uh, in the 50s when they won the cup three times in five years but effectively in the first two years he was the manager as well as the chairman, and his record is absolutely outstanding. But in the strict sense of the word, it's very difficult to put him in there. But 
our three, I think, in the time of most uh, fans' memories would be Harvey, Kevin Keegan and Robson are the three outstanding managers. Three def- definitely kind of different characters. Joe was a very hard man. You, you were good friends with him. Yeah. So you can tell us more about that, but he's a very strong, tough character. Keegan, I imagine, could be when he needed to be. We all remember, you know, I, I would lure it uh, scenario yeah, in front yeah, of the, yeah. the sky cameras. And Sir Bobby, again, I imagine, not someone you'd want to cross, but he came across as this very friendly, kind of grandfather-like mm. character. Was Joe's persona, the way he was portrayed in the public, was that Joe Harvey that you knew? Was he, you know, this tough kind of army general character? Yeah, I mean, I think he basically was. All all three managers had a streak of steel in them. You cannot be successful without that because you've got to make very, very tough decisions on team selections, who you're going to buy, handling the, the board, not to mention handling the press. So you've got to have that steeliness about you. But, I mean, Joe is known as the, the Sergeant Major. That's the type he was. Kevin Keegan is known as the guy who wore his heart on his sleeve. And Bobby's a sort of mixture of the two. But Harvey was a, a very warm guy underneath. He, he was a great man-manager, as both... Keegan and Robson were. Uh, that was the, the the strength that ran through all three of them. I mean, the only the only sadness I find with with Keegan and Robson is that they deserved so much to win things with Newcastle because they did so well with us, but fell that one bit short of a trophy in both their cases. Quite staggeringly when you look back, because they were so highly competent and did and really, if you take Keegan, he took well, from the brink of the third division to Premier League runners-up. So how good can you get? That was terrific. And if you take Robson, he took us to third top of the Premier League and the season in Europe in the Champions League when we played, I don't know, 12, 16 games, when we had two Two stages of um, of league of league period. So I mean, they were successful, but there wasn't a, a silverware at the end. There was with Joe, and that's got to make him slightly ahead of the other two. What I like about Joe is that obviously he was this legend in Newcastle United. He lifted the FA Cup mm. trophy, but he went down the leagues to earn his earn his stripes, Absolutely. and he came back up. Can you? Just t- tell me about the first time you came across him. Uh, well, the funny thing is, the, the first time I came across him, I was a little bit asking for his autographs. That's the first time I came across him, when he was in the, in the Newcastle United side of the 50s. And during this lockdown, I just got the old um, autograph book out, which has been thrown in the back of the, the cupboard upstairs for about 50-odd years. And there's, there is... The photograph of the Newcastle United 1951 side, which was the greatest side we had, according to Jackie of the three, with all the autographs on, and there's Joe Harvey and Jackie Milburn, etc., that I went to work with. And um, but I mean, it was very early on. Um, he went away from Newcastle to Barrow and Workington, both of whom in those days were in the football league, neither in the football league now. Hello, Barra might be coming back, and learned his profession there, and then was brought back to Newcastle when they were very much on a downer 
to, to try to rally the troops. I mean, Alf McMichael was still playing at Newcastle when Joe came in as a, his manager and Alf had been in the cup side with Joe. Um, and Joe Harvey built over nine, eleven years, built three good, good Newcastle United sides, the promotion side of 65, that won the second division championship, then the European First Cup side of 69 and the FA Cup side of 74. Um, and at no stage during his reign as Newcastle United manager were they relegated. There was no negatives, there was only pluses, which was promotion as second division champions, winning the European First Cup, getting to the FA Cup final, and of course won the Anglo-Italian, which everybody smiles about, but wasn't such a Mickey Mouse competition because you were playing Roma and the Fiorentina, uh, the good sides of Italy, in one-off games. He hadn't home in the way legs, uh, so he was extra special. But we've got to put Kevin Keegan and Bobby Robson very, very close. It was a three-horse race, and by far... If you take Stan out of it, Stan Seymour, because he was really the chairman of the club, by far, we haven't had a lot of great managers, you know, when you look back at Newcastle United. Because the years when we were winning everything, there wasn't managers. The, the Edwardian side and the, the 20s side that won the, uh, the league title and the FA Cup. There weren't managers. There was just a committee of, uh, of directors that picked the side. Out of the three that you've mentioned there, from your personal experience, who gave you the biggest bollocks? Who who was the one that told you off the most? You reckon? Oh, great question. That probably probably Joe because he was the fiery guy. There was always this. But I I always think if you haven't got that relationship with a manager, one of you is doing the job wrong. Whether it's you as a journal or whether it's the manager as the manager, because you're bound to conflict with each other on certain occasions. Managers don't want things out. We do. Uh, and always with all three, there was a recognition that you were uh, basically singing from the same, same hymn sheet in as much as you cared about the club. You were both fans of the club. So while you're going to have your moments, and Joe would be probably the biggest, uh, Kevin handled it very different way. Kevin had the heart on the sleeve. Uh, he was always likely to take to his toes. He was very emotional, whereas Joe Harvey wasn't. He was very grounded. And Bobby was somewhere in between. But the great thing with all three is that they were terrific man-managers, and that included handling everybody, the press, the directors, but the most important of all, handling their players. So when you did get a telling off then from Joe, was it something that was just, it was done, it was said, you'd leave the office and then the next time you see him it would be fine or was there any kind of, no, some managers no. get the feeling that they might hold a bit of a grudge and they'll remember who you are, but what was it like with Joe, what was the relationship well, like there? Yeah, Kevin Keegan would do it that way. He would remember who you are and perhaps sulk for a couple of days and then everything would be fine again. But Joe would give you the most God almighty bollocking that's, that's possible, as he would with players. But the next day, it's as if yesterday didn't happen. It's all forgotten about and you're back out there doing your job. And, and that is very, very good man management. And, uh, Joe Harvey handled his players in exactly the same way because he, 
and he, but he was clever. He handled different people in different ways. He handled Supermac, who was a big ego and a strutting John Wayne type of character. He handled him a lot different than Hibby, who he put his arm around his shoulder, gave him a kiss and told him what a, a great play he was and gave him a fag. Uh, so he handled everybody in a different way. Um, Bobby Robson was, was very clever that way as well. People got a, a different idea of Bobby because as you, as you know, he never remembered anybody's name. So, uh, everybody was, was, uh, Sykesy was, um, Eric Gates at, at Ipswich because he thought he was Eric Sykes, uh, and so forth and so on. And, and uh, Sholam Yobi was Carl Court and there, there we were. Uh, he, he didn't remember people's name, but he was clever, and it wasn't a sign of age. He'd been like that from being a very young manager at Ipswich, as Jack Charlton was. So they were different, but but the same in lots of ways, and very successful. But as I go back, if football is about winning trophies, and perhaps we at Newcastle have forgotten it's about winning trophies, we haven't done it for us for so long, but then Joe Harvey has got to have their edge over everybody because he did that, including the most significant trophy, it could be argued, that we've ever had which is our own European trophy Just describe to me then you know, coming back to Newcastle as Joe did with that cup in his hands the, the Fairs Cup, given mm. what it looked like at half time during that second leg, that second oh. leg final and then to be Come out the airport to see all the faces, and then it gets in James's park. Just explain. I don't, what was it? I must have been pride for Joe. Oh, I mean, the, the marvelous thing for Joe is that the night we won the European First Cup was the day of his fiftieth birthday. And can you think of a better present for a manager than getting a European trophy, the first in the club's history, and still the only one in the club's history on your birthday? Uh, and for Joe, as much as anything, it was a throwback, you know, to what he was used to, because he had lifted the FA Cup at. Wembley twice as Newcastle skipper, 51-52 and a lot of people forget was on the coaching staff in 55 when they did it again and in those days for younger listeners for younger Newcastle United fans today, the FA Cup was ginormous in the 50s it was like the the uh, Champions League is now, if you like. It, there wasn't a Champions League then. It was the big, big thing. And the whole of the country came to a standstill on Cup Final Day. Uh, so it was a massive, massive thing. And he was used to that, Joe, uh, with Newcastle United. Uh, then he came back to Newcastle and he suddenly produced a trophy again. So for him, it was a, a confirmation that Newcastle was his club and this was extra special. And he was, I've never seen him so satisfied and have such a, a contentment and relief, uh, both at the same time, that he'd come back to his beloved club and they'd actually won something like they had in his playing days. Well, there you have it. So, Gibbo's top manager, Joe Harvey, with Kevin Keegan and Sir Bobby running a close second and third. On to the best captain of Newcastle, yeah. John. You've picked yeah. Bob Moncur. Yeah. You held a talk in at a, a local pub not too long ago. With uh, Bob. What, what pub was that again, Andrew? <laughs> it was Lane <laughs> Head and Writing. Um, 
And what you get with Bob is still that, just that pride, you know, that he's captain of Newcastle and that he led them to a Fairs Cup and he spent the best part of his career on Tyneside. Yeah, there's no question about that at all. Um, he was very much um, in the image of his manager, which is Joe Harvey, um, uh, and Bob was very cut from Joe Harvey's cloth. And uh, I was talking to Bob just the other day about this um, podcast that we were going to do, and I said, hey, pal, I picked you as the best uh, captain. And while he was well chuffed, he thought I'd picked the wrong person. He thought that I should have picked Joe Harvey as the best captain. And he is one of my three. If we go to my three, uh, they, they were shortlisted, uh, as I had the three managers, my three best captains of Newcastle United with Bob Moncur, Joe Harvey and Alan Shearer. Uh, and for me, yes, you've got Jimmy Schooler with a cup and 55, etc. But for me, the best three without a shadow of doubt are Moncur, Harvey, and Shearer. I wasn't going to pick Harvey again. He's already had best manager. He can't be greedy. He can't be best captain as well. Although he was a fabulous captain. But Moncur um, was a captain in the mould, exactly the same sort of captain as Harvey was. And the difference is Moncur also captained his country. Joe was very much a club captain and a terrific club captain, but Bob Moncur was captain of Newcastle United and captain of Scotland, and he was captain of Scotland against England at Wembley, which is the home internationals, as they were in those days, were the biggest games. So he has... He was our Bobby Moore. Uh, Bobby Moore was the England World Cup captain and the West Ham captain who epitomised everything that was good in football and Moncler was our Bobby Moore in all ways, in build, in the fact that neither of them could break into a run. Uh, they just walked, but they had wonderful brains that we, they could anticipate where the ball was going to be. And uh, we mustn't underestimate what a great skipper Alan Shearer was in all this as well, because it's very difficult, I think, to captain the side from either centre-forward or in goal, because you're at the two extreme ends of the pitch. It's better if you're a defender or midfield player. But Shearer led by example... Uh, he was a terrific goal scorer and a wonderful, wonderful captain. And again, how many times did he captain England, for goodness sake? Um, again, what possibly gives Monks the uh, edge over uh, Shearer is because, again, if this is a business of winning trophies, Monker did. Alan didn't, although, my God, didn't he deserve to. Um, but Monker won and lifted the Fairs Cup, and we've got to recognise that. So Monks nicks it from both Harvey and Alan Shearer. But I think Alan Shearer was absolutely outstanding. You mentioned there the character of Bob being similar to Joe. So is that in the sense that, you know, Joe didn't take any prisoners, he didn't yeah. let the standards drop? Because, again... Obviously, I never met Joe Harvey, but I've met Bob, and, and Bob comes across to me as more of the person, a bit like Sir Bobby, where he's very nice, very friendly. Mm. But if you cross him, you wouldn't bother. Whereas, again, this is just an assumption, but Joe was, to me, just seemed like a fearful, a fearsome character that I just wouldn't want him <laughs> yes. across the side of the road if I saw him kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that with Joe. But in, in truth, when Bobby was a player, uh, Bob's 
mellowed a little bit now um, as we all well I was going to say we all do I'm not certain about myself but most people do um, uh, but Bob when he was captain of the side was like Joe like he was he didn't just go out and flick the coin he was captain of Newcastle every moment of the day in the dressing room in training on match days and he would rollick anybody in the team that he felt wasn't playing to the utmost, wasn't doing enough, was letting the club down. And his word was very much law in the dressing room and nobody wanted to cross Bob Moncur when he was captain of Newcastle United. And when you get people like Malcolm MacDonald, who was not the same sort of guy off the park as Bob, but having the huge respect. You've got it. You had to earn Supermax respect because he was this big number nine who the fans adored and was the marauding centre forward of England that scored five goals in the game. And he has huge respect for both Harvey as a manager and Moncur as a skipper. And if Supermax doesn't have respect for you, he lets you know as. Don Revy found out as England manager, etc., etc. So that spoke a lot for what Monker had at Newcastle. Bob made his debut 1963 as an 18-year-old, but it wasn't until mm. the 67-68 season that he, he kind of broke through. And then the second half of that season, he was handed the captain's armband, which seems a remarkable, I'm not yeah. going to say turnaround, but a remarkable kind of set of things to happen when you're at the start of that season thinking well am I going to be first choice here and then suddenly four yeah. months down the line he's captain yeah yeah I, I think he was always a captain in waiting I mean the only answer was going to be was he going to be a good enough player he was always going to be a good enough captain because it, it, that was something born in him and he Initially, he was playing as a wing half in those days, was slightly different. He was, he played midfield as a kid. He, he was going around the team. Where would he settle? And he eventually settled in the sweeper just behind the main centre half. And that was perfect for him because he read the game so well. And, um, uh, he, he was a tough guy by, that is one of the things as well. About Joe Harvey, he was physically tough on the field as a captain. It was like hitting a bag of iron when you hit Joe as a, as a striker. And Bob had that, you know, the tree trunk legs, the, the real sort of, um, uh, frightening aspect to his game. And, um, he was very much in that mould and he found his position and once he did uh, that was him and he went on to the first cup and of course he was captain as we remember in the the winning of the Anglo-Italian and the 74 cup final which was his swan song to us there's Alan Shearer ringing in the background saying why aren't I first the phone line there ringing. Um, yes, you heard that. <laughs> yes, no, I'll get. I probably will get that call from Alan. But uh, I would say, listen, big man, you just had to win a trophy, and you would have been on top of Gray's Monument. <laughs> Indeed. Just again with with Bob, you had many kind of uh, European trips with him. Yeah. Great, great character off the pitch. Yes. Um, 
but a great professional off the pitch. You weren't going to get uh, Bob condoning any sort of um, scallywags uh, around the camp because that wasn't his style. He was sort of the eyes and ears of the manager. He was a second manager as well as, well as a skipper. Uh, very loyal, hugely caring and a great link to the fans because... He was basically a fan himself. Yes, he was a jock, but he was down here from being a schoolboy from the Scotland boys' side and has spent the rest of his life, apart from when he went and um, managed uh, Hearts and Plymouth and Carlisle, the rest of the time he's been a Geordie the whole of his life. Because there is a story that Bob likes to tell about uh, yourself, about a certain match report. Uh, could you just tell our listeners about that one? Yeah, yeah, Bob Bob loves this one. This is when he goes out to dinner. He tells this story quite regularly. It was about when we played in Europe. Uh, I think it was Sporting Lisbon. We're certainly staying in Lisbon. Um, and after the game, we went down. It, we're in Estoril. We went down to the local bar uh, to celebrate and have drinks immediately after the game, the night of the game. Uh, and Bob was in Matthew's Rosé was the great drink then when you were in Portugal there was little uh, round bottles of Matthew's Rosé and Bob tells us all the players it was lovely that you had that sort of um, uh, ability in those days to mix with the players if they trusted you uh, and I was sitting right in the middle of the players afterwards and I'm writing my notes and while we're drinking this uh, Matthew's Rosé and of course uh, I'm saying I'm asking him questions about the game and he's saying oh I, I did well and I got the ball and give it to him and I'm writing this down and he reckons that he therefore wrote my report uh, he certainly uh, gave me a lot of the quotes that I used we we rather stayed there a long time I would think uh, certainly it was not just after midnight but if we hadn't left I think dawn would have broke very quickly on us all so we went back to the hotel I collapsed into bed and um, of course it as it was about four o'clock in the morning, by the time the phone rang at half past six, seven o'clock from the office, I was absolutely out and the office couldn't, I, the phone rang and they couldn't get me. They rang Bob's room then and said, have you seen Gibbo? And he said, ah, yeah. So he had to come rushing round to my, uh, to my room, knock on the door and say, hey, your office is on the phone. And then, mind, this was Europe and we just won and the office would be sweating. Like, and he, he always tells the tale, I sort of leapt out of bed, uh, obviously in my birthday suit, grabbed, grabbed the phone, grabbed the padder, and read all these wonderful quotes Monker had given me the next night, which sold a million copies of the Chronicle, or so the story goes according to Robert. There, there was a lot of truth in it to a certain extent, but they were the great, great days, and the sort of camaraderie there was between the press and the players, and, the, and as I said, Bob was very, very good at that, but he takes... Uh, Great credit that he not only captained Newcastle to win the uh, to win the European First Cup, but he wrote a lot of reports that appeared in the Chronicle. <laughs> the best match report Bob Moncure ever had. Yeah, absolutely. I won the award, but Bob wrote it. <laughs> you mentioned there his his managerial career, and just slightly off on a tangent because we are we are focusing on his, yeah. his captain abilities. But you always felt he was pretty much destined for that Newcastle United job. 
Yes, I did. Uh, um, you know, you, you get your surprises. I always thought, for example, John Tudor had a lot in to be a manager, and I never thought that Malcolm McDonald would ever be a manager. Malcolm McDonald was, we sometimes forget, a very, very successful manager at Fulham. Tudor never made it to manager. I always thought that Moncur had gone away to manage Carlisle and um, Hearts, etc., etc., to learn the trade in the way Joe Harvey did, and then he would come back and manage Newcastle. And uh, I've got to reveal that he was close to that one, because I was the go-between when uh, between Newcastle United and him when he was at Hearts as a manager, and Newcastle wanted him to take over here, and the only thing that uh, prevented it was typical Newcastle United. They wouldn't pay a compensation fee to Hearts to bring him down. So the minute money was involved, you pay money to, to get a striker, but you won't pay money to get a manager. I've always found that weird because a manager has got to be at least as important as your centre-forward. Uh, so he might well have become a Newcastle United manager. I always felt that he was destined to be, and it's a great shame that he never got that chance. And I, I think without a shadow of doubt, in his managerial career, that is what he did want. He wanted to end up as Newcastle manager. There you have it. Gibbo's top captain, Bob Moncure with Alan Shearer and Joe Harvey following up on the list. So some exciting news about our podcast. We're now hosted on the Global Player app. Don't worry if you get your podcast from Apple, Spotify or Acast. You can still get them from that platform, but we do recommend that you download the Global Player app. It's available in iOS or from the Google Store. Right, on to then, John your top game that you've covered yeah. as a Newcastle United reporter. Many, many to choose from. Oh. We haven't done the maths because it's many years, but could you hazard a guess at how many games you've seen? Oh, well, it's it's since I came back from Fleet Street to cover Newcastle for the Cron, which was 66, it's 54 years. So if you think that initially I went to every single game Newcastle played and then I've continued to report on them ever since, uh, far too many to remember, it is literally into the thousands. And, and there's so many of those that could be selected. Uh, quite easily, but the one I have selected is the one that had it all, literally had it all, and that's a European First Cup final, second leg in Budapest, um, and it's had everything, because including a trophy at the end of it, which was absolutely wonderful, but if you go back to remember why it had it all, in the first leg, Newcastle played Uzbestos, the greatest side in Europe at the time, Hungarian superstars, uh, Revy had said they're the greatest side, Jock Steen had said it was the greatest side, etc., etc. We had won 3-0 at home, Now, and there was a couple of weeks to the return game. Now, when you win the first leg 3-0, you can't help but think, if you're players, if you're the press, and if you're the fans, that the trophy's yours. It is hard to blow a three-goal lead. So you go out to Budapest and you think, we've all but won this trophy. It's, it's already ours. And then by half-time in Budapest, we're 2-0 down. 
2-0 down and getting slaughtered. But for Willie McFall, the goalkeeper, it would have been 4-5 and we would have actually been behind on aggregate. As it was, it was 3-2 to us. And we were, I remember sitting in that game. Uspestos assured in that first half what a super side they were. And I was sitting next to Len Shackleton in the stadium. Shaq was my roommate on all the first cup trips. I'm sitting next to, to Shaq and we looked at each other at half time and we said, we've lost this. We're going to lose this. And this is going to be the biggest disappointment ever in Newcastle's history. If you're 3-0 up in a European final and you don't win the trophy, it's got to be the biggest letdown ever. So we went from the elation at kickoff that in an hour and a half time were crowned kings of Europe to at half time thinking this is gone completely. And then the next 45 minutes we score three goals. We win 3-2 on the night and 6-2 on aggregate and we're running round the track with Newcastle's only ever European trophy. Now, you cannot get a better game than that. As the listeners might have already guessed by now, there's kind of a Fairs Cup theme running through. this game. we won something. <laughs> exactly, and Bob... Scored a habit There's not many because it's so long ago that, I, that they've actually seen we win anything. But you've got to admit for excitement. You're 3-0 up at the start of the game. By your halfway through, you've lost it. And by you come out of the end, you've won it and you've got a trophy. That game had everything, every emotion possible was in that hour and a half. Now... In the podcast previously, we have we have spoken about this moment, but we can't talk about winning the first cup without the half-time dressing room talk. Or it wasn't really yeah. a talk; it was a, it was a sentence from Joe yeah. Harvey, which sparked it all off. And again, it incorporates Bob Moncurney. He always references the fact he he was looking around for the manager and thinking, "Where the heck is Joe Harvey?" And then suddenly, like a Hollywood movie, the doors open, and then into the light comes Joe Harvey. And I'll let you carry away the story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody was down. I mean, I'm talking about sitting upstairs uh, with um, with Len Shackleton and being absolutely decimated. At the same time, Newcastle players were sitting in the dressing room with their heads down and their sweat dripping off them, absolutely decimated. They needed some help to get back into the game. And the door swung open. Joe had come in late by the time he walked round from the dugout, etc. He walked through the door and he just looked and said, what's the matter with you, look? And, and he said something that it is not politically correct, which is, these are foreign boys. These, if you if you score one goal against these, they'll fold like a deck of cards. All you've got to do is go out and score a goal. Now get out there, score the goal, and it's all over. We won. We'll go home with the trophy. And he left, went out, and the players were so hey, that's easier said than done. I hadn't been over the halfway line in the first half, but at the same time. Um, they suddenly thought, yeah, the guy's right. We are still only 45 minutes. We're leading 3-2. We're only 45 minutes from the cup. It's still in our hands. And unbelievable, the whole thing was unbelievable because that's all Joe said. He didn't do anything tactically with the team at all. They went back out and the guy that plays sweeper for, for Newcastle United, Bob Moncur, who never crosses the halfway line, 
scored two goals in the first leg. He volleys in a goal within following a corner within minutes at the start of the second half, and the whole complexion of the game changed and it was exactly right as Joe said they folded like a deck of cards and we went on to win uh, the the leg 3-2 and 6-2 on aggregate it was absolutely astonishing and bear in mind this was Joe's uh, birthday 50th birthday now you can either say he's the luckiest guy on this earth or he's the cleverest guy on this earth it didn't need tactics when you're in that leg, what it needed was backbone and belief. And Joe gave them that. It didn't matter about tucking in for overlapping wingers, etc., etc. What was it like in the press box? Because I've been at games. Um, I was. I used to come up here in Albion, and I remember being at a game mm. when they got to the championship. It was a, it was a last minute winner. And in the press box, you had guys who'd been there for 30, 40 years covering Burton when they were right down you know, in the dumps, and yeah. it was just a celebration. Was it like that in the first cup final? Because you, yourself, even your Castle fan, you talk about Len Chatterton there. I yeah, imagine there were quite for a few... Newcastle, Ivor Boris was there, they played for Newcastle. Um, yeah, exceptionally so. And the amazing thing is, and you've got to always remember this, that yeah, in their press box, there's more Hungarian reporters than our hours, and it's half-time... They're sporting around. They think they've won it they, because of seeing the way they score another two goals in the second half, and we are in dreadful, dreadful trouble. Um, but there was enormous uh, relief, enormous exuberance. In I remember, we all stood up in the box long after the game, watching the presentation of the trophy and the team run round the pitch with the trophy. And you had a fight back from tears in the eyes. And these were cynical old hacks and former players that had seen everything, like Ivor Broaders and uh, uh, Jackie Milburn and Len Shackleton. Uh, but it was a very, very special moment. And the party, we were all, again, can you imagine that? Today, we were all went straight into the Newcastle United dressing room at the end of the game. Can you imagine today going into the Newcastle United dressing room on the final whistle and joining in? I remember drinking, it was like a yard of ale because they filled the, the first cup up with booze, with champagne, and it was this long tulip-shaped cup and drank out of it and it was like drinking a yard of ale. Um, in, in the dressing room, you were all in it together, and it was a wonderful atmosphere, and we went back to the hotel, which was on St. Margaret Island in the middle of the Danube, and nobody went to bed that night, of course. It was a, it was a terrific, and for a person that was local, like myself, and had been a fan all my life, I didn't think, incidentally, I thought this was the start of a wonderful life. I didn't think it was the end of it. I, I thought this was the start of me seeing Newcastle win things quite regularly. I didn't think I would be sitting here um, 50 odd years later and I haven't won anything since. Maybe that's all about to change, but that is a totally different story. Fingers crossed. Just a quick reference then to the other two games that came into Ooh, it, 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 yeah it, it's very hard you pluck them off the top of your head and um, 
it's almost the, Barcelona was one, of course, when we beat Barcelona in the Champions League um, with uh, Aspria and Gillespie running the show, and that had almost everything because we went three nil up and and. Nobody could believe that. And then they came rolling back to 3-2. If they played another three minutes, it would have been 3-3. And if they played another ten minutes, Barcelona would have won. But they didn't. We won 3-2. That was a fabulous, fabulous game. And um, the other one that really, off the top of my head, strikes me was the semi-final in 74 when we beat Burnley 2-0 and Supermax scored the two goals because... We were at Wembley, again, having had the, the history of the 50s when I was a little kid in little shorts sitting in front of a television uh, and suddenly we were going back to Wembley um, when all odds were against us and every round we'd won away from home to get to Wembley and every round supermarket scored. We'd had to have three games against Nottingham Forest, uh, which... Uh, really encroached on the semi-final because they, we hadn't the time in between the two sets of games so that comes to mind as well but probably Barca would be the one that would stick out uh, but nothing of course can beat the second leg of the first cup final There you have it I imagine had I asked for the best pass you've ever seen Terry Hibbert's pass for that yeah, super yeah. goal oh. Absolutely. I must watch that once a month on YouTube. Absolutely. I think that is by far the greatest pass I've ever seen. Oh, absolutely fabulous! Because if if he took one touch, two touches, the chance would have gone. And it was it summed up everything there was between these two guys: the great provider and the great finisher. And together, they were absolutely immaculate. And it was the fact that they knew each other. That produced that goal because as the ball was coming towards Hibby, Hibby knew that McDonald would get on his bike. When McDonald saw the ball going towards Hibby, he knew it would be first touch played in. So they both anticipated what was happening and did it to perfection. And of course, killed the game. And, and there we were at Wembley. And uh, it's a great memory of, of two outstanding players who were then sold by Gordon Lee. Thank you very much, Gordon, who then disappeared off to Everton. But that's a totally different story. Yeah, we'll not, we'll not go down that path. This no, we certainly won't. of happiness. Um, there you go then. John's top game was the Fairs Cup second leg of 1969. On to the best goal, the top goal yeah. that John yeah. has seen during his uh, journalism career covering Newcastle. Go for it, John. Yeah, <clears throat> well, there, there was quite a... F I'll mention the ones that were under consideration. Obviously, we've talked about one that I considered, which was the, the Hibby uh, Supermac goal in the semi-final. The other great uh, Supermac goal, the best he scored for Newcastle, in my opinion, and certainly in his opinion, was against Leicester at St James's Park, which ironically there's no film of because in those days they didn't uh, television didn't do every game uh, like they do today with match of the day. So there's no there's no uh, film of this goal at all against Leicester when he scored from running from his own half and, and 
top corner. There, there was Shearer's goal against Everton uh, when he lashed it at the Gallagher end into the top corner. There's a spear, the leaping, leaping like a salmon header against Barca from Gillespie, uh, who was absolutely magnificent. But the one I've chosen for the sheer audacity of it, for the level of opposition we were playing, and for it being the crowning glory of it, absolutely scintillating victory was Philip Albert's chip against Manchester United when we beat them five at St James's Park um, ironically every goal in that game bar Darren Peacock's first which was as scruffy as perhaps the centre-half's goal should be a scruffy one that just made it over the line I, didn't, I don't think it hit the back of the net but there was Great goals from Shearer, from Ferdinand, from Ginola. But Albert's chip, bearing in mind it was Manchester United, bearing in mind it was five, and bearing in mind the goalkeeper arguably was one of the best goalkeepers, if not the best goalkeeper in the world, Peter Schmeichel. Uh, and it was a centre-half having the audacity to chip like that. Wonderful, wonderful goal. And I'm certain a load of Newcastle fans, and not just the ones... Uh, from that era, but the young lads, that, like you have seen the um, the, the semi-final goal, uh, so many people have watched Philip Albert's goal, uh, and for me, that just put the icing on the cake of that match, and against Man United, considering, remember, what we feel about Manchester United, them having nicked the title off with one more 12 points ahead, them having humiliated us in the Charity Shield final at Wembley, to take them apart at St James's Park and finish up with that signature at the end of the game. Wonderful. There's a few things that stand out for me for that goal. Firstly, the commentary from Martin Tyler. You know, on a day they were they would have taken 1-0, here they are looking for number five. I mean, I could recite that. Yeah, Absolutely brilliant commentary from, uh, from the Sky Sports commentator there. But also, you've got the celebrations, you know, yeah. the smile from Albert, you know, Watson sliding in. Um, and the other thing for me is the fact that, look, Newcastle United have been thrashed by Manchester United several times since, and we're talking badly. Oh, uh, absolutely. absolutely. But at that time, Newcastle and Manchester United were the best sides in this country one of the two of the best sides in Europe, and to thrash your rivals like that, I mean, and we know they did it in the Charity Shield, um, but again, you've got the pressure of Newcastle then trying to right that wrong as well. Yes. Just a fantastic result, and like you say, the, the chip, just, just the icing on the cake. And if you remember, we were the, the best two sides in the country without the shadow of doubt. If you remember, successive seasons, Manchester United won the title and we finished runners up. And... Um, I, I think the epitome of that victory is that Kevin Keegan, who was so thrilled and carried away by it all, rushed up the stairs at the end of the game before the players come off the way and was standing at the top of the stairs waiting to congratulate the players when they come in. And Eric Cannon just walked past them and said, you've got an absolutely fabulous side. That was wonderful to watch. Now, when somebody of Cantona's ability uh, will recognise a Newcastle United performance the way that was, um, and you've got to remember that for that goal as well, when Newcastle blew the 12-point lead to Manchester United, uh, when really 
they ought to have been crowned champions. Um, Manchester United came to St James's Park and won 1-0. Cantona scored the goal. But really the star that day was Schmeichel. Schmeichel played the Newcastle attack on his own, kept them out repeatedly, then Cantona broke away, scored. That's how good Schmeichel was. And for Schmeichel to be taken to bits five times in one game by Newcastle United. And when you look back, that was a, quite a staggering Newcastle United side. We Because it didn't end up with a trophy, it perhaps will get lost in history and, and not get its just desserts. But that was a fabulous To watch that side in those years, to watch the entertainers play and for them to be your club we didn't just win matches we won them magnificently we won them the way football matches ought to be won shall we go back and revise your best game and put this one at the top do you think it could quite easily have been at the top but as a Newcastle United fan mate if we win a European trophy Forget it, that has got to be your greatest moment until we win the Champions League under the new owners, of course, and then that will replace the first cup. Wishful thinking. Just yeah. to on Philip Albert, we mentioned what a great goal it was. He didn't score anything else other than great goals, or did he? Was it a double against Manchester City when he, he hit one from distance and you're thinking, what on earth? I mean, how are you a centre-back? I mean, to be fair, he was a good defender, good in the air, he had speed about him, but... He, he couldn't half pass or, or, or shoot a ball in the back of the net, could he? Oh, I mean, he, he was far too good to be a centre-back, far too good on the ball to be a centre-back. But people get reputations and do amazing things. When you think of our centre-half, Albert scored nothing but good goals, uh, quality goals. Montez scored nothing but important goals. He scored. He's a centre-half. He, he never scores goals. He gets three in a European final. As a kid, we won the Youth Cup. 1-0 against Wolves in the final Moncur gets a goal he scored we won the Texago Cup uh, and Moncur got the goal um, it's amazing how things happen like that but Albert's ability uh, on the ball was quite amazing um, people that jumped to mind I guess Jonathan Woodgate had that sort of uh, ability uh, on the ball and you think are you wasted as a centre-half? Well, no. In these days, these days, Albert would be an even greater star, wouldn't he? Because they want somebody now to step out the back into midfield and prompt things to happen in the same way as you want your goalkeeper to be very good with the ball at his feet. Albert would be a, a super, super star. He certainly would. It's scary to think how much you could command for someone like Albert or Bob Moncur, like you see, he could pass a boy, he could pick a pass. You know, yeah. we've had some shockers in central defence, but we've also had some cracking options. Absolutely. On to the next then, and it is the top moments across yes. all the decades of Newcastle United. So, I mean, we've already mentioned some there. We've mentioned the Fairs Cup. You know, we've yeah. mentioned the FA Cup wins of the 50s. We've mentioned, you know, the, the games like beating Manchester United 5-0. Yeah. But you've gone for something off the pitch. I have, because 
Uh, I'm thinking, well, if I look back at my career where I've been lucky, what have I seen happen at Newcastle United, the club I love, in the same way as all Geordies love Newcastle United. What have I seen that's different? It would be very easy as a top moment to pick winning the first cup to, uh, or watching Jackie Milburn's side as a kid. But it's very, very rare you get the privilege as a journalist to actually take part in the history of, of your club. Uh, in the main, you're there to record the great deeds of others, the great deeds of players on the pitch, the great deeds of managers, etc., etc. You're very rarely presented with an opportunity to make some difference. And therefore, if I'm self-indulgent, and I am picking my best moment, then it's got to be the fact that um, I was part, for me, of the Magpie group that smashed the cartel of Newcastle United where the, the leadership of the club in the boardroom was always handed from father to son and with no qualification, no ability necessary. That's the way it went because it was on shares that the father left to the son, the son come in the boardroom and then left it to his son and the club starts, can start to drift. Uh, there was an uprising amongst fans wanting that to end and John Hall was catapulted into the front of that as the figurehead. The Magpie Group was formed to support John. John Hall felt that he must have the backing of a newspaper to have any chance of success because he needed to get the word out to fans and that meant the newspaper had to be aboard. An approach was made to the Chronicle to be that paper, it was a very, very brave decision by Graham Stanton, the editor, to do that because it put the paper immediately at loggerheads with the current board. Uh, I was put forward as the man from the paper to go onto the Magpie Group and do the job as part of the Magpie Group. And the reason why it was a, 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 a top moment for me is because A, the movement was successful, it wouldn't be a top moment if it hadn't been. But it wasn't just that we smashed the boardroom setup as it was and changed the history of the club, but it was what came as a result of that. Had that happened and then it all went wrong and Newcastle were as bad as they had been before the takeover, then it would have been terrible. But what came out of that, immediately came out of that, was a sh albeit a short period, but a period where, for me, it's the greatest football I've ever seen Newcastle play. And I'm taking the European First Cup side, the, the side that won the Cup in the 50s, the matches like Barcelona, etc. For me, the entertainers, when Keegan come in, which was the appointment of the Magpie Group, Kevin Keegan come in, Newcastle were a game off going into third division, the old third division, and they ended up buying the greatest players that were available uh, from Beardsley, Ginola, Spears, right up to Shearer, Ferdinand, Andy Cole and going from one game from the third division into runners up of the Premier League playing the sort of fabulous football that made you proud to be a Geordie that was the result 
of the takeover thing and it was a very 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 small part I, I played in the whole thing but on the inside the part was recognised by John Hall in what he's said since and it's because not of, of John Hall bless him or anything of that nature it's because of Kevin Keegan and the entertainers if I did one thing to help that happen then I'll go to my grave very, very happy because that was a wonderful period to be a jury. We may have blown a 12-point lead, but we were 12 points ahead. And I tell you what, didn't we play football the way football ought to be played? You can win by being very hard to beat. You can win by defensive football. Kevin Keegan wanted to win famously 4-3. Um, and while we lost... To Liverpool by that score the team that he built for a short while is the most wonderful thing you could see Indeed, I mean you can look back to our podcast episodes where John and I spoke to Sir John Hall, it was about this time last year, we spoke to him about everything to do with Newcastle night including the battle that John is talking about there we've also done specials on the entertainers, building the entertainers as well as Kevin Keegan special as well, so there's plenty to go back and reminisce bits of what John's covered there. I mean, you can also actually go on YouTube and you can find interviews of John back in the late 80s, early 90s, where he's got a full, well, he's got a, a better colour hair than he has now. <laughs> no, no, I um, like silver. I like silver. Right? It was longer, I should say, Andrew. It was certainly longer. And uh, velvet jackets, Cuban heels and flared trousers. Not quite today's uh, uh, look, but... Uh, it worked at the time, mate, I can tell you. <laughs> Fascinating interview it is. Uh, we can find that on YouTube. Like you say there, had this gone wrong, you were then pitched on the, the wrong side, you know, had the battle oh. been won by the, the, the current ownership. Um, and and also, it, it was two things. It was that. I mean, uh, I had been told privately by Newcastle United that if when they won the battle, I would be banned for life from St. James's Park. And I said, well, perhaps it is. When we win the battle, you'll be banned from life. Uh, but it was twofold. It was not just winning that battle, but it was what came afterwards. Uh, and the reason it is my great moment is not because the battle was won, because had it gone completely pear-shaped, it would have been something that was actually humiliating and you want to forget about. And it's not a matter of looking back from a fan point of view of whether they like John Hall or not, whether they like Freddie Shepard that came along after John Hall. It's the period on the park with Kevin Keegan in the dugout and the entertainers on the park. Nobody can get away from that. And if you were privileged enough to see that side play, that is the purest football you could get. I mean, that's the important message, isn't it? I mean, you can you can talk about winning the first division title, getting up to the Premier League the way they did it in such style. I think they were I think they were top from September of that year and, and just did not let it go. You can talk about taking the Premier League by storm, qualifying for Europe, a Rob Lee Hatwick in Belgium. You know, yeah. Yeah. That's even before you get on to what people term the proper entertainers. You've got the stadium expansion in, what, 93, 94. You know, all these things that Sir John had a vision for. And the one thing that actually stands out above all else for me is the fact that he didn't actually, at the start, want 
to be the man in charge. He wanted a, a share. He wanted the fans to take the shares up, and he always says that um, on, his, on his on his headstone it'll read something like "Never wanted to own a football club." Well, that is that was absolutely true at the start, and that wasn't the intention at all. And but the amazing thing is, you know, when you look back on the entertainers, and that's what we're concentrating on here, because. It's not, people can't see what goes on in the boardroom. Uh, what they can see is the results on, on the pitch. And that entertainer's side on the pitch, it was quite staggering because it was built on the vision of Kevin Keegan, known good players, etc., etc. And this man had spent eight years living in Spain, completely out of out of football in this country, playing golf every day. Had never been a manager in his life. Can you imagine if the takeover happens now and you appoint uh, your next new manager? He's lived out of the country for eight years, playing golf, has nothing to do with football, never managed in his life. Would you welcome him with open arms and say this is a terrific appointment, Kevin Keegan? had something going from i.e. being a superstar legend up here as a player but that doesn't make you a, a good manager as we found out Ozzy Ardiles Graham Souness Kenny Dalglish Rud Hullett you can be sensational players but not the, the manager that you wish it was quite staggering that Keegan in his first managerial job produced the entertainers and may I say that whatever he did after that it, it clubs like Fulham and Man City in with England never ever topped what he did with the entertainers at Newcastle. Wonderful, wonderful period. Well, there you have it. And just briefly, John, there are two moments that come into mind when we're talking about your, your top Newcastle United moments. Um, good question because uh, a lot. Of, I mean, obviously the the first cup come in, uh, come into the whole thing. Um, and it's easier to think what wasn't one of my great moments. And I think that was when Mike Ashley came to Newcastle United. I think that doesn't go down as one of my great moments. So I didn't realise it would quite be the way it has turned out to be when he when he walked in here. But because um, and if there's anything with with John Hall that, uh, that I want to say, oh, blink an egg, John, it was that he sold Ashley, though in fairness to him, he didn't know at the time uh, what was coming out of that. But I think it, uh, the other great things have got to be memories of great players, um, you know, and, and to be privileged as a Newcastle United fan to work with, let's take number nines. They, because that's what Newcastle's about and to have worked with everybody from Jackie Milburn up through um, through Wynn Davies to uh, Supermac and Tarn Shearer absolute privilege uh, to know these guys and um, to witness them and I think Alan Shearer will stand as the greatest number nine of Newcastle United and his goal scoring record Probably for all time, because these days people don't stay as long as at one club as Alan did at Newcastle United, because they move on to to get signing on fees, to to do things elsewhere, to win trophies, etc., etc. So to have been around Milburn, Supermark, and Shearer, um, who become three personal friends, uh, and that is my privilege, not their privilege. Big moments for me. 
There we have it. Well, this has been the latest episode of Gibbo's Corner. Gibbo's top Newcastle-United topics. That's the catchy subject title that I've come up with. It's not very creative. I do apologise. But, John, thank you very much for joining us. We hope uh, you're keeping well. A little message to, uh, to our listeners before we sign off. Yeah, just uh, looking forward to seeing you all again in the 52,000 crowd at St James's Park. We don't know how long it'll be before that happens, but believe you me, it will happen. And when it does happen, perhaps we might be thinking of a bright new future for the club. I've uh, said I'm not going to retire until Newcastle wins something, but that doesn't mean I want them to win something in two years' time and retire. I want to see it time and time and time again. We've all waited for that. Maybe, just maybe, it'll come. We've had great players. Let's have some great trophies. Thank you.